Uh, as you continue to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy, uh, I'll let you know that this sermon was originally going to cover verses 12 through 20. We were going to finish up chapter 1 in, in two weeks. Uh, but the more that I dove into the text, the more that I studied, the more I realized <laughs> I'm not going to be able to cover it all today. Um, and so what we're doing is dividing it into two different sermons. And so we're going to have verses 12 through 17 today. We're going to hit 18 through 20 next week. And I'm looking forward to both today and to next week. But today, what we're doing is we're continuing to look at God's blueprint for the church all of chapter 1, really focusing on the importance of sound doctrine, making sure that we get the gospel right. This is not an area that we can afford to, to get wrong. Why? Because sound doctrine, a healthy understanding of the gospel, is absolutely essential to establishing and maintaining a healthy local church. Why? Because only the true gospel saves. Only the true gospel transforms. And that's the good news of the Christian gospel. That's the good news of the Christian gospel that has countered every other quote-unquote gospel that is being preached throughout the world. The Christian gospel transforms. It transforms lives. And there, here is where we turn our attention to today. Paul pointing us to the transformation that the gospel has had upon his life and upon the life of everyone who believes. So picking up in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now what I love about this section of verses Paul has just finished laying out a, a correct understanding of the law in verses 3 through 11. He's attempting to correct the misuse of the law that is being preached, is being proclaimed by the false teachers there in Ephesus. And he's reminding Timothy, and he's reminding everyone who would ever read this letter, which obviously includes us, that the law was given not to save. It was never intended to save. It never had the power to save. What the law was given for was intended to, to restrain sinners from sinning. Just like we used the illustration of, of, a, of a speed limit sign last week. What, what, what is it? Is it a suggestion or is it a law? <laughs> and some are like, well, it, it's, it's a suggestion. No, it's a law. Speed limit sign is there to restrain speeders from speeding. The law is given to, to restrain sinners from sinning. But what's going to happen? A sinner is eventually going to sin. We can try to not to for a very long time, be doing our very best not to, but we're still going to sin. And then what the law does is it makes it evident that we have broken God's law, that we do stand condemned before holy God. There's a weight that comes with that. A weight of condemnation, a weight of judgment. It's a weight of thinking, 
What do I do now? <laughs> what hope do I have? The, the law is then pointing us to our desperate need for a Savior. The law is pointing us to our desperate need for Jesus. And this is where Paul, after breaking that all down in verses 3 through 11, this is where Paul breaks out into celebratory praise. He doesn't respond with some theological discourse here. He doesn't end like, okay, here's the right use of the law, and then say, well, what happened for me was, was first regeneration, and then uh, justification. I was made right before God, and I was adopted, and, and then I was sanctified, and, and I'm going to be eventually glorified. All those things being true, but that's not what Paul says here. No, that's not what he says. Well, how does Paul respond? He responds with thanksgiving. He responds with praise. He responds with a heart that is overflowing with joy for what Christ has done and continues to do in his life. Look at verse 12. This is how he starts. You call this like the front of the book here, the one book in. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in verses 13 through 16, he reflects on what Christ has done for him. He, he kind of articulates a brief summation of the gospel. And then he bookends that on the back end with verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What Paul is demonstrating to us and showing us here is that his entire life is permeating with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what the Lord has done and what the Lord continues to do in his life. And remember, this is a guy who's been stoned. This is a guy who's been imprisoned. This is a guy who has faced trial after trial, all kinds of trials, and yet he is crying out with overwhelming thanksgiving for what God has done and continues to do in his life. So I don't know how you, you come into this room today. I don't know what you have going on in your life and what circumstances that you're, you're wrestling with. Maybe you're on the highest of highs or maybe you're on the lowest of lows. But if I'm, when I'm reading this text, what I kept asking all week long is where does that joy that Paul is exuding here and this heart of thanksgiving, where does that come from? What brings about a heart of praise like that. But what is, what is the source? Where is this coming from? And So question number one, and we're going to ask three questions today. Question number one, what brings about a heart of praise in the life of a Christian? Like where does that come from? If it's honest, genuine, real, biblical praise, where does that come from? I'm talking about warm fuzzies. I'm not talking about feel goods. They're just going to help you get through the night. I'm talking about stuff that will last and matter 10,000 years from now, 10 million years from now. Where does that come from? Number one, Christians praise God because we know who we once were. Christians praise God because we know who we once were. That's what we see being expressed from Paul. Look at verse 13 and how he uses three words to describe the man he used to be. He, started, he says, formerly, formerly, no more, but formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. He's a, a violent opponent, all of this of the gospel. Paul's telling Timothy and everyone that would ever read this letter again that his former life, he spoke evil of Jesus. 
And he did everything in his power to try to get others to speak evil against Jesus. He vehemently persecuted the church. He wanted to destroy the church. He wanted to destroy the advancement of the gospel. So to say that Paul was a violent man would be the understatement of the century. Paul was a violent, violent man. Violent man. Now, most of us, and praise God for this, most of us, no matter how vile our past may have been, cannot and will not come close to the evils that Paul committed in his life before coming to faith in Christ. Again, I say praise the Lord that none of us will, will be to that degree, Lord willing. But every single one of us in this room, all of us have a B.C., a before Christ. We all were someone before coming to Christ, whether we were young when we came to faith in Christ or whether we were much older when we came to faith in Christ. There was a time when every single one of us in this room who are believers in Jesus Christ were enemies of God. No one is born a Christian. Now, we'll hear people from time to time, they'll say, I've been a Christian all my life. Well, with all due respect, no, you haven't. No one has. No one is born a, a believer. You may have been born into a home that professed to faith in Christ, but no one is born a Christian. To the contrary, we are born dead in our sin. We are born separated from God. We are by our very nature and by our practice lawbreakers. This, this is what the Bible tells us. And as such, we are under condemnation. That's what the law is telling us. That's what, what the law, that's what Paul's coming to a very clear realization from. And part, Paul's heart overflows with thanksgiving to God because this describes him no more. He's no longer under condemnation and that's not the man he is anymore. He's no longer a blasphemer, no longer a persecutor, no longer a violent opponent of the gospel. Those describe him no more. <laughs> And if you are in Christ, your past, your B.C. before Christ defines you no longer. Doesn't mean that you don't wrestle with it. Doesn't mean that you don't have issues and things that you're battling through and consequences that we still have to deal with until this day. But when it comes to our standing before God, that's gone. And for that, Paul gives praise. Gives great praise. He's no longer that man. Number two, Christians praise God for the undeserved mercy we've received. And by human reasoning, looking at Paul's life, looking at our life, this is unfathomable. When we reflect on how sinful our hearts and lives once were, forget that. Think about how sinful our hearts and lives can be right now, Right? Like the, the thoughts that we have, we don't want anybody else to know. It's unfathomable for us to think that God would have mercy upon us. That's what Paul's expressing about himself. Describing himself as the least deserving person to receive God's mercy. That's how he sees himself. Like I am the foremost. I'm the least deserving of this. But what Paul is telling Timothy and us is that as vile as he was, the reason he's making this statement is that as vile as he was, he was not beyond the reach of God's mercy. He was not beyond the reach of God's mercy. Which in turn means no one 
is beyond the reach of God's mercy. No one is. And that says way more about God's love than it says anything about us. No one is beyond the reach of God's mercy. It's a love so great and so vast and just so unfathomable. That's the gospel. It's the mercy of God. Two different times in verse 13 and verse 16, Paul says, but I received mercy. He's wrestling with this. He's thinking about the man that he once was. He's becoming more aware of of the sinful hearts in his own heart, sinful desires in his own heart. And he's saying, but I received mercy. I can see him writing this with tears coming down. I, I received mercy. God's mercy being defined as Christians not receiving what we deserve. Not receiving what we deserve. What did Paul deserve? What do we deserve? God's judgment. We deserve condemnation. We deserve God's judgment. Why? Because we go back to the law. We've broken the law. We're lawbreakers. But instead, everyone who comes to to Christ by faith receives what? Mercy. God's mercy. Thus, the deep and abiding thanksgiving that we see exuding from the heart of Paul. Paul is saying here, God had mercy upon sinful me. How? How? I don't know. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. He has had mercy upon me. That's what we see from Paul here. That's what he starts in verse 12. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, church, you find yourself in a season where you're finding it hard to give thanks. You find yourself in a spot where it's like, I want to give thanks, but I'm having a hard time giving thanks. Take time to reflect upon the undeserved mercy that God has lavished upon you. Take time to reflect upon these and let your heart be led to worship. These are good truths. Number three, Christians praise God for the undeserved grace we've received. The undeserved grace we've received. In verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, as Paul writes, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You think about a river overflowing its banks, and we've seen that quite a bit here recently. Thankfully, the river is down and we'll be able to get on it and enjoy it today. But to think about uh, the the river as it overflows its banks, and typically we see that with devastation, right? Well, let's not think about that with devastation, but think about that as just abundant blessings. That wherever that water reaches, it brings blessings. Bountiful crops and blessings wherever it goes. But the blessing being spoken of here is being the blessing of God's grace. It's the grace of God. Grace being defined here as Christians receiving what we don't deserve. See, his mercy is, is we, do not, we do not receive the judgment that we deserve. But in God's grace, it's believers are given what we don't deserve, the blessings of God. We are receiving what we do not deserve. Now, what are those blessings? What are the blessings that he speaks of? He tells us again in verse 14, faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Both of these 
are, are, are brought about by God's grace. They're products of grace. The grace of God giving us the ability to see and experience the love of Christ that comes exclusively by faith. So a heart that was once overflowing with unbelief, like Paul, never in his wildest dreams would have ever thought he would believe. It's just abounding, overflowing with unbelief is now a life that is overflowing with belief, overflowing with faith and love, overflowing with the fruit of the grace of God. This blind man who could not see the truth of the gospel, refused to see the truth of the gospel, by God's grace has had his eyes open to see these glorious truths and now believes. The man who was dead in his sin did not want to follow Christ, refused to follow Christ, ignored the things of Christ, was ignorant to the things of Christ, now is alive and desires nothing but to follow Christ. How do we explain that other than by pointing to the grace of God? We cannot, we will not. It is by God's grace. Oh, church, all of that, all of it, everything It's by God's grace. We do nothing, have nothing, bring nothing. We believe because he has given us the ability to believe. That's grace. Faith is a means of grace. And there's so much more to talk about here. I want to just keep diving in here. Oh, the depths, like the depths of God's grace. The more you reflect upon your life, both before Christ and now, and just, you start saying, what? <laughs> like, I want to relish in this. I want to rejoice in this. And this is why Paul is so overwhelmed and heart overflowing with thanksgiving. Because these things are resting as truths to his weary soul. He's resting in this. He's saying, okay, I once was that, but I am not that anymore. Me, the foremost of sinners, has received God's mercy. Not only has he held back from the judgment that I deserve, now I've also received his blessings. I've received grace upon grace. Oh, church, this leads us to question number two. What makes salvation possible? How is all of that possible? How? (laughs) And the answer is the true gospel. The true gospel. Not the false gospel that is spreading throughout the church in Ephesus. Not the false gospels that are being preached today all throughout the world. But the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where Paul says in verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What Paul has laid out there in verse 15 is a brief summation of the gospel. He goes, you've got the law that's intended to restrain, to restrain sinners from sinning. But it's only going to restrain for so long. Ultimately, it's going to reveal that we are under the condemnation of God. We deserve the judgment of God. It's going to point us to our need for a Savior. And the gospel is the reality that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came on a rescue mission. So four things Paul's telling us in this verse. It's a jam-packed verse right here. Four things that he's telling us. Number one, the content of the gospel is trustworthy. 
The content of the gospel is trustworthy, which means the gospel Paul preaches is true and it must be trusted. Paul's contrasting here the true gospel with the false gospel that is being preached by the false teachers. He's saying, okay, one brings life. That's the true gospel. The other or anything else that is contrary to this true gospel only brings death. So yeah, obeying the law can make you feel good about yourself. It's like a checklist or a to-do list. How many of you like make little to-do lists for yourself? Like that's it? That's all of you that make to-do lists for yourself? Like the last service, everybody's hands went up. We got the type A crowd and the type B crowd. We got different ones. We got, I make to-do lists. And for those of you who are with me in making to-do lists, you understand you make a to-do list. Why do you make a to-do list? Well, one, so you can know what you need to do, right? <laughs> but also you make a to-do list because it makes you feel good about checking something off of the to-do list. There's something you make the list and you're like, okay, I checked these things off. I feel accomplished. Well, to make myself feel more accomplished, I will put things on the to-do list that I've already done. <laughs> I will put something on there that I can immediately go ahead and check off. Or I'm going to put something on there that about three seconds later, I'm going to do with no effort at all. Check, got that done. That's one more thing I feel accomplished about today. Even if the one thing left undone is going to take me the vast majority of the day, I've got 20 things already marked off of my list and I feel good about myself. That's a misuse of the law. It's making us think that we are right, that we're accomplishing something. Like, look at all that I have done when it doesn't really make value worth at all. What Paul is saying here, what Paul is saying is only this gospel can be considered trustworthy. Not a, a wrong misuse of the law. Nothing can make us think that we're better than we are. The gospel is the only one that is trustworthy. He spent his entire life trying to check things off of a list. He spent his entire life being able to say, okay, I've obeyed here and I've obeyed here and I've obeyed here. But you know what the law reveals? Is that Paul, no matter how much he obeyed, was still a lawbreaker. He still broke the law by his own testimony. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent opponent. So he's speaking from his heart here. Not just his mind, but his heart. And he's saying only the gospel is true. Only the gospel will bring life. And this is what is very hard for the pluralistic world around us to believe. A world that is crying out for tolerance in every way, in every corner to accept. Be tolerant of every belief. The idea that there's only one absolute true and right way to be right with God doesn't seem fathomable to the world. But that's what Paul is saying. There is only one truth. And it is this gospel. Salvation is not obtained by works or any merit whatsoever. It is only obtained by grace through faith in Christ alone. Which brings us to number two. The offer of the gospel is deserving of full acceptance. So because it's true, it should, it must be accepted by all people. All people. 
In chapter 2, Paul argues that the, the gospel must be made known to everybody. To everybody. Why? Because all people from every background, from every tribe, tongue, and nation need to accept, need to believe the gospel as true. It's of paramount importance. If they don't, they cannot and will not be saved. It's not just a head knowledge, it's a heart knowledge. Why? Again, because they cannot be saved apart from this gospel. We do not accept these truths, do not accept this gospel then we remain under the eternal judgment and condemnation of God. But there's hope. That's where we come. Again, the the law is intended to restrain, show us where we stand condemned, but ultimately it's to point us to our need for Jesus. And we see in number three that the heart of the gospel is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. It is an absolutely loaded theological statement here ultimately implying that the purpose of the gospel is to save sinners, lawbreakers, those under condemnation from God, Christ, the eternal Son of God, came to save. Look at the first part. Christ Jesus came into the world. Came into the world implying preexistence of the one who was coming. It's a clear reference to the incarnation of Christ. Jesus taking on flesh. The eternal Son of God, who had only known a perfect love relationship found within the Trinity, eternally existed in that relationship, not needing anything other than Himself, humbled Himself by leaving a perfect sinless heaven and coming to a sinful world inhabited by sinful people. And not only that, He said, I'm going to live the life that you could not and have not lived. I am going to become sin on your behalf. And He lived that life perfectly and sinlessly. And then He went to the cross bearing our sin, bearing the judgment that we deserve. Dying the death that we deserve to die in order to give us a hope and a future that we do not deserve to have. This is the mission of God. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the heart of the gospel. Jesus didn't come to save the just, the righteous. Why? Because no one's righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He came to save sinners. It's everyone. We're all sinners. That's where we're included. But here's where the application comes in. Number four, the application of the gospel extends to the foremost of sinners. To the worst of the worst, the gospel extends. So application here is personal. It's personal. Yes, the gospel is to be preached universally. It is to be preached widely. It's to be preached to every tribe, tongue, and nation on the planet. Offered to all peoples to accept. Repent of your sins. No matter what your background. No matter what you have done. And you will be saved. Repent and believe. It's the universal call of the gospel. But for this good news to be received... To be effective, it must be believed individually. 
It's a decision that individuals, by the grace of God, must make. That's why we're called to go. To go make disciples of all nations, of all peoples. To share, to proclaim these truths, that there is a God who saves. That there is hope for the hopeless. And a quick note here. Look at how Paul describes himself as the foremost of sinners. Now in verse 13, he used the word formally to describe his life of blasphemy and persecution and violent opposition to the gospel. All past tense. He says, that that describes me no more. That's former me. But now here in verse 15, notice he doesn't say he was formerly a sinner. Notice here, there's no past tense here. Only present tense. Why? Because even in receiving the blessings of the gospel, the grace of God, Paul still understands himself rightfully to be a sinner. As we never in this life will ever stop being sinners. Never. We're never going to reach a point in our life and say, okay, I have finally made it. No more sin in my life. That will never happen in this life. Not going to. No. And now notice here also that, that he doesn't just say that, describe himself as a sinner. But look how he describes himself as the foremost of sinners. Now, does this mean that Paul really was the worst of all sinners? Like nobody could ever top Paul in his sinning. I mean, it was vile and it was egregious. But could Paul go out and and systematically know, scientifically know, okay, I really am. I've done all the research. I am the worst of everyone. No, I don't believe that's the case. I don't think that's what's being said here. But what I believe is happening with Paul here, and I believe every Christian growing in their relationship with Christ can relate, I believe Paul here was so vividly aware of his own sin that he could not conceive that anyone could be a worse sinner than he. He couldn't couldn't fathom it. He was so aware of his own sin. He's like, "How, how could anybody be more vile than me? And I don't think here that he's just referring to his past. I don't think he's just sitting here and saying, okay, that's my past, that was who I was. No, I think he's looking at his heart in that present moment and he's seeing and he's understanding how vile his heart is. Why? It's the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. See, the the more we grow in our understanding of the gospel, we grow in our understanding of the holiness of God. We also begin to grow in our understanding of how sinful we are. Because when we look through that that telescope and we begin to see what we see once as small, it's like, wow, the holiness, the grandeur, the glory of God. We begin to see ourselves even more so rightly for who we are. Sinners. As Jonathan Edwards said, sinners in the hand of an angry God. We see ourselves that way, but at the same time, what it does is it increases our view and understanding of the cross of Christ. Look at this image on the screen with me. Right here on this screen, you have your life progressing. Some of you may have seen this before. It's not original with me. But if you're progressing your life, wherever it is, maybe it's young or whether it's old, you come to faith in Christ. You're converted. 
You're saved. You repent and you believe. And your understanding of God's holiness and your sin is about this level. Right here. You're saying, okay, I know God's holy. I know that I am under his judgment. I know I need a savior. And you believe. And you're saved. You're saved. But then, as you grow in your life, and you continue in your sanctification, becoming and growing in Christ-likeness, your awareness of God's holiness, again, only continues to grow. At the same time, you're having moments that you're being convicted of sin that you never were convicted of before. And you're thinking, how horrible of a sinner am I? It's like the longer you progress in your, in your, your sanctification, in your life with Christ, the longer you're a Christian, you're like, huh, I just feel worse. Ever feel that way? But what does it do? It points us to the cross of Christ, and it makes the gospel that much bigger in our eyes. Does it make the gospel actually bigger? No. It just helps us see it for what it is, the love and the grace and the mercy of God that has been lavished upon us is more massive than we could ever begin to understand. Church, He loves you more than we can ever begin to understand. Let that bring your heart to worship. Question number three. Why does God have mercy on Christians? <laughs> like, why? Like, that's like the ultimate, why? The simple answer, because God is a merciful God. Because God is true to his character. God is a merciful God. There's no other explanation than this. Paul wasn't saved because of his obedience to the law, Paul wasn't saved because of his heritage. Paul wasn't saved for any reason that can be traced back to Paul. Paul was saved for the same reason that any one of us who are saved or any person that is saved are saved. Because God is a merciful God. That's it. But then we look at the text and we see Paul mention two things that appear to be factors in leading God's mercy to be lavished upon him. So we're going to look at both. Understanding again that they have nothing to do with the works of Paul. But number one, Paul received mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's what verse 13 tells us. He says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, if you know anything about Paul's life before coming to Christ, you know that Paul was zealous for the things of God. He, he was active in making his checklist and doing everything that he could to obey the law. He wanted to do everything to know the Scripture, obey the Scripture, be in line with the Scripture, and obey God. And he thought he was doing it right when he was opposing the name of Jesus. He thought he was right. That's why he was a, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent opponent of the gospel. He wasn't setting out and saying, I want to see how bad of a person that I can be. Paul thought he was being right and that he was actually honoring God in what he was doing. Same could be applied to many throughout our world today. But hear this, please. This ignorance that Paul speaks of in no way changes the fact that Paul or anyone else is a guilty sinner. His ignorance doesn't establish a valid claim of deserving God's mercy. 
Ignorance is never found anywhere in Scripture as validation for a get-out-of-jail-free card. We do not see that anywhere. I was like, oh, I, I just didn't know any better. Oh, okay, you get a pass. That, that's never found anywhere in the text. Mercy would not be mercy, and grace would not be grace if, there were any, if they were in any way deserved. It would cease to be those things. But what Paul is communicating here is that his opposition to the gospel, his opposition to Jesus was not done with a clear understanding of the gospel. He's like, I was completely ignorant to the truth of the gospel. I was blind to the truth of the gospel. Did not, could not see the truth of the gospel. He knew not the one that he was blaspheming and persecuting. And if he did, he would not have blasphemed and persecuted. He's like, I'm completely ignorant. I did not know. Now, like, that's not like Hymenaeus and Alexander that we see in verse 20. We're going to look at them next week. They claim to follow Christ. They, 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 they claim to follow Christ. They were probably elders within the church. They, again, claimed to be believers, yet they proceeded to reject the gospel. They preached a false gospel. Now, Paul, on the other hand, was acting like those here who hung Jesus on the cross. Paul's actions were not like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who knew the gospel, were familiar with the gospel, and then rejected the gospel. No, what Paul is doing here is acting like those who hung Jesus on the cross. And what were Jesus' words to God the Father in reference to those who hung him on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus wasn't implying there that these men who did this egregious action were saved because of their ignorance. They were not. They were not saved because of their ignorance. But neither were their, their sinful actions egregious enough to prevent, prevent them from being forgiven. Think about that. This was not the unforgivable sin. Hanging Jesus on the cross, driving the nails through his hands, putting a sword through his side, crucifying the Messiah was not the unforgivable sin. This was not a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It was not. They were not beyond the reach of receiving God's mercy and grace. But like Paul, they must repent and believe. Like us, they must repent and believe. They are responsible for the decision that they make. Do you receive him as Christ, believe him to be Lord or not? The same applies to every person today. Number two, Paul received mercy so that Christ may display his perfect patience as an example. It's verse 16. Paul saying, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Now, Paul's conversion was no doubt unique. He received a, a heavenly light, an audible voice from Jesus, was made blind, definitely unique. None of us have been saved that way or will be saved that way. But it also serves as an example of every conversion, 
of every conversion that has ever or will ever take place. Of every sinner who will be brought to faith in Christ. And here's how. Paul's conversion was intended to display Christ's perfect patience with sinners. Perfect patience. The fact that God saved Paul is a standing source of hope to otherwise hopeless situations. That's what it is. We all have loved ones, family members, friends, neighbors, people that we are trying to share the faith of Christ with, trying to to see, come to know Christ. We're praying that they will come to faith. But if we're being honest, their heart seems unpenetrable to the gospel. Like, no matter what we say, they are antagonistic towards the gospel. Unbelief, blinded to the truth. What has cleared us makes no sense to them. They're just like Paul and just like us before coming to faith in Christ. And it's to this person that we are prone to say, they're never going to come to faith. There's just no way. There's no way they're going to come to faith. And what Paul is saying here, with all that he's saying, he's saying, if there is hope for me, there is hope for them. If there is hope for me, there is hope for you. There's hope. No one is beyond the reach of God's love and mercy. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. This is what Paul was articulating here. The true gospel. Not a a misuse of the law, not a false gospel, not something else. This gospel, no one is beyond the reach of being saved. No one. And this is the spark behind Paul's evangelistic zeal and confidence. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that he knows here, and it's the gospel that he's experienced here. And the gospel that has radically changed his life. And it should be the spark behind ours as well. Not just looking at Paul's conversion, but our own. To think and to understand the more we recognize how holy God is and how sinful we are and we see the cross of Christ and its magnitude, we realize and say, okay, if God can save me, he can save anyone. Do you believe that? That if God can save you, he can save anyone. That's the truth of the gospel. We go, yes, Anyone, he really can, neighbor, yes. Person who seems unfathomable, yes. Inner city gang member, yes. Immigrant, yes. Multimillionaire thinks that they have it all, yes. Atheist, yes. Muslim, yes. Buddhist, monk, yes. Anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can and will be saved. That's the truth of the gospel. And knowing and believing that, Really believing that, that will boost your evangelistic confidence. Like anywhere I go, 1040 window, place where they're chopping off heads, wherever I go, people can and will come to faith through this gospel and this gospel alone. Church, that's good news. And the zeal, like the understanding is like, I've got to go. 
I gotta go next door. I gotta go across the dinner table. I, I've gotta go to the uttermost parts of the world. I've gotta go make this gospel known. I gotta go make disciples. The zeal, the emphasis for that, the catalyst for that, is knowing that this is the only gospel that does save. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? It's the essential nature of the taking this trustworthy gospel to the nations, to the person across the street, to classmates in our schools, to co-workers that we get around. We have to be intentional of saying people need this gospel and need to fully accept this gospel gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and now he is using redeemed sinners to take the gospel, this good news, and share it to a lost and dying world. That's unfathomable. (laughs) That he's going to use the redeemed to make his glory known. When we consider all of this, everything that we have looked at, it's no wonder Paul broke out in absolute praise. In thanksgiving. He's reflecting upon who he once was. He's reflecting upon God's mercy and grace. And he's saying, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He wants everyone to know this truth. And the question is, is that you? Do these truths flood your heart with thanksgiving? With confidence? With evangelistic zeal? If not, I'm going to challenge you to really take time to ask why. If you need to get together and talk, I'm always happy to do so. You just need to say, hey, pastor, can you pray for me in this area? Happy to do so. If you need to come up and talk to me right after the service, you, 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 you didn't know these truths, but you're saying today, hey, pastor, I walked in blind, but now I'm seeing things that I've never seen before. Like, let's talk. Praise God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, the only fitting place to begin this prayer is by saying thank you. Thanking you for the gospel. Thanking you for salvation. Thanking you for extending your mercy and your grace. And I pray that we will never move past reflecting on and resting in these truths. Let our hearts and minds remain continually held captive by these trustworthy truths. Your word says deserve full acceptance. So yes, let our hearts overflow with thanksgiving today and every day. But also let these truths what has taken place in our lives motivate us to take the gospel to all peoples. 
knowing that this gospel is the only way any sinner can be made right before you. And as those sinners here, we ask for you to open their hearts to believe. We ask that in this room today, that will take place. Bring the spiritually dead to life in Christ. And again, to the God, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.